everybody um, for this extended session of Nursing Grand Rounds. And this program is being recorded, but it's not being web streamed. Today we'll be discussing one way that we can advance our work with victims of sexual assault through the introduction of trauma-sensitive <coughs> yoga. Our presenter for this session is Abby Tassel. Abby is Assistant Director of WISE, the Upper Valley's anti-domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking organization. She has trained as a teacher in three schools of yoga, including trauma-sensitive yoga. And WISE does offer trauma-sensitive yoga at, yoga at their program center in Lebanon. At the conclusion of this program, learners should be able to explain how yoga may improve the functioning of traumatized individuals by helping them to tolerate physical and sensory experiences associated with fear and helplessness. I would like to share with you an excerpt I received this week from the CDC. April, um, most of you probably know, is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And the CDC's Injury Center is urging all of us to spread the word about preventing sexual assault. Sexual violence is a serious problem that affects millions of people every year. National studies indicate that an alarming one in five women have experienced rape or attempted rape. One in 71 men reported experiencing rape at some time in their lives and 1 in 15 men have been forced to sexually assault someone during their lifetimes. Rape results in about 32,000 unwanted pregnancy, pregnancies each year. Sexual violence involves a range of acts, including attempted or completed rape, verbal or non-physical pressure that results in sexual coercion, unwanted sexual contact, and non-contact unwanted sexual experiences such as verbal harassment. The consequences of sexual violence burden victims with physical and psychological injuries that can last throughout their lifetime, a burden that also results in significant economic and societal costs. Sexual assault is preventable, it's not inevitable. Evidence supports comprehensive approaches with interventions at multiple levels, from individual to community. This multi-level approach is critical to having a population level impact on sexual violence. Neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So with that, I'd like to ask Abby to come up and speak to you about this topic. Okay. Thanks, Abby. Yeah. So um, welcome all. Thanks for coming to hear about um, Trauma Center, Trauma Sensitive Yoga, and in particular, guys <coughs> is doing this work. Um, as Deb mentioned, um, WISE is the Upper Valley's anti-domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking organization. And um, so we do all sorts of activities related to both preventing um, gender-based violence, which are those three things, um, and intervening and responding. So many of you, as you know, clinicians, have probably interacted with a WISE advocate when you've had a survivor present. Um, we also work with the criminal legal system, the civil legal system, um, mobilize the community to work with us to end gender-based violence, and um, do groups. And so one of the groups that we've been doing at WISE is Trauma Center Trauma Sensitive Yoga. Um, so before I go any further, it'd be great if you could just introduce yourselves and maybe say you know, who you are, what you do, and what your relationship is to yoga. 
So there, there may be none, um, but good for me to know before we get started what who we have in the room. So, Betsy, do you yeah. So I'm Betsy Morse. I'm a nurse practitioner at Dick's House, and I also work as a SANE, a sexual assault nurse examiner uh, through the ED here. I take call and do one to three cases of um, sexual assault victims, um, domestic violence, and violent crime. Um, per month? No, per year. Per year, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's just the sort of luck of the draw. I, that's been my experience. Um, uh, I, uh, probably 20 years ago, I did yoga regularly in um, North Carolina with a fabulous teacher. And uh, because of that experience over several years, I occasionally do it at home on my own. And, really benefit from it when I do. Thank you. <laughs> my name is Alicia. I'm a registered dietitian here in the endocrinology clinic. And before I started working here, I um, taught yoga full time. Uh, I went to school for yoga therapy and did like the 200 hour training and 500 hour training, mostly trained with children. I went into schools and classrooms and things like that. Um, we started a yoga program with the diabetes and rheumatology pro, uh, patients upstairs, which we're hoping will grow. Um, so far it's a slow start, but hoping that we can get um, maybe more sections involved to try to get um, any patients that want to come to the class. Cool. Yeah. Great, thanks. I'm Leslie McGregor. I'm a nurse practitioner in general internal medicine, and um, I have uh, Let's see, I have a lot of interfaces with yoga. I've studied yoga for the last 10 years with the Iyengar teachers in the area. And I did do a teacher training program and taught for a couple of years. But now I'm pretty much a nurse practitioner. Um, <laughs> attended a program at Kripalu in February on the science of yoga for health professionals. And uh, brought back a book by Lisa Nelson and the dietitian there on uh, endorsed by the ADA. Okay. Yoga and yoga for diabetes, and have been wanting to meet you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to do a presentation for the general internal medicine department about the science behind yoga too. Oh, nice. So I'm trying to pull that together. I'm Susan Destacio. I'm a nurse practitioner in the pain center here. Um, and I practiced yoga on my own, and I uh, did a 200-hour training several years ago and um, taught it to um, with cancer patients um, because most of my career has been in cancer patients. Um, but um, we've been talking about doing something with yoga and chronic pain patients, many of which our patients have a history of trauma. Thanks. Uh, my name is Pam Tilton. I'm a health coach with Live Well and Work Well. We, um, I hope you're familiar with us, but you're not. <laughs> um, we work with the employees and their families and uh, family members in the household. And yoga, um, I go in and out of practice a little bit, but have fibromyalgia, so which is actually part of the reason I'm going in and out. And I'm just always interested in what line you're mm -hmm. Todd Gardner, I'm a behavioral health coordinator with the psychiatry department. And I did 200-hour teacher yoga teacher training years ago with Tom Sherman, um, Nijananda yoga teacher training. 
And then I did a $200 with David Emerson. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And Bessel and yeah, at Cropalo about, I don't know, five years ago or so. A 200 hour? I'm sorry. I meant, I meant a week long. Oh, okay. Very, yeah. very different. 200 yeah. hour with Dijon yeah. yeah. And I did a week long. Yeah, yeah. And Jen, I forget her name. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think I know who I mean. Yeah. I do not and then I didn't really, well, the minimal teaching, I worked briefly at the VA inpatient uh, side unit there, and I was doing yoga with some of the vets there for a while, but I'm no longer there. So now it's more consult with patients admitted to, to uh, units other than the inpatient unit here. And it's sort of brief intervention, substance use, which, you know, trauma is the root of almost all of that. So I'm keenly interested in doing more, doing, you know, brief chair yoga with people. Mm -hmm. yeah. As Bessel would say, the DSM would be a pamphlet if it were to a trauma. <laughs> yeah. right. what, what did you say? Bessel van der Kolk, who used to yeah. run the trauma center, says that the DSM should really be a pamphlet yeah. because you know it's all trauma, really. Yeah. That <laughs> all of these other diagnoses are really about trauma. Uh, I'm David Milne, the retired headmaster. Uh, I'm working here at the hospital as a volunteer uh, patient family advisor. Uh, and I'm trying to get as much exposure to different parts of the hospital as I can. My wife and I had a terrible exposure to yoga. Uh, we, we both signed up for an introductory course. The instructor moved so incredibly rapidly that you, you could not remember what one was supposed to do. Uh, we both left, left totally demoralized and had never done that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yes, I, um... Yeah, much of what is taught now is a particular style called vinyasa, which it sounds like is what you had, and is definitely... It was, it was just beyond belief. Yeah. <laughs> Not what yoga is. Okay. Do you, do you want... No? No. No? I'm, sure. no? <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking. I think everybody here knows me. Okay. Um, I don't. I am. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, at Dartmouth Hitchcock, and uh, let's see, I'm, I feel uh, somewhat responsible for making sure that everyone in the medical center knows about WISE and the, and the um, services they provide, and we make sure that at least in October during Domestic Violence Awareness Month and April during Sexual Assault Awareness Month, we always, I think I can say 100% of the time, do something to acknowledge those two issues. and. Um, with Abby sit on the domestic violence task force where we address various topics from time to time. So I appreciate all of you being here. Can I also yes, say that please. with patients, um, most websites aren't very printer friendly, including WISE as far as like printing out oh, just what you want. So, but uh, it's, you're not alone there. A lot of them, you know, you end up, things are cut off or it, it's an overlay, so you only get part That's of um, it. So I created my own sort of, with your yoga program, um, information to give to patients. But then I saw the table down the hall, and I admit I stole a stack of them. How did you there for? No, that's completely <laughs> can, Is there a way to get more of those? Absolutely. Because I have some social workers that would love to have yeah. a stack. Yeah, so just the kind of what we, what's happening. That included like the writing workshop yeah. and the yoga yes. and the, yeah. And it's electronic too, so we can just. Oh, you could use a PDF version of that? Yeah. Okay, perfect. 
Yeah, we update it periodically as well. Right. So this is the kind of thing that's great. Yeah, that can yeah. happen at these kinds of. What is interesting? I got here early today, so I started reading your booklet. Yes. My wife and I have lived here in the Upper Valley since 1995, uh -huh. and it wasn't until this morning I realized that Wise was not just for women only. <gasps> oh, very good to know. Well, it's one of the reasons. I mean, it was founded as Women's Information Service, right. and it's one of the reasons that we specifically have done away with that language. Okay. Is we want to make sure that people know that it's not just for women. And around 10% of the people who we work with are men, and then and people of all genders, of course. So, yeah. Yeah. So thank you. So there, there's so much wisdom in the room that we will draw from um, that will hopefully make this a really rich discussion, not just me kind of going on and on. What I'm going to be presenting is largely from the trauma center. Um, so... You know, you'll be getting some of my own personal take on it and a lot of the trauma center's information. Um, I have been, you know, kind of doing some yoga for a couple of decades, at least now, three decades, who knows, and um, was got very, there's a school in Western Massachusetts called Kripalu, um, and where the trauma center has really been doing a lot of its partners, partnering and Kripalu is a kind of magical place if you haven't been. And, um, you know, I was interested in becoming a yoga instructor, but never really thought I would. And um, about 25 years ago, started to get into the work that I'm doing now. And um, around 10 years ago, we at Wise bought a building that we're now in on, in Lebanon on Bank Street, and someone who many of you may know in our community, um, Angie Fallensby Hall, who's a yoga instructor, was doing her yoga teacher training, and she called Wise, and she said, well, part of my training is I have to teach in some sort of social service organization. You've helped friends of mine, so I thought, you know, Wise would be the perfect fit. And we said, great, we just bought a building, we have some space, um, why don't we do it? So um, Angie and I led a um, support group where she taught yoga for an hour, and then we were gonna do our typical kind of support group. And um, so Angie comes on the first night, and I think we had about 10 women and a bunch of kids, you know, with a babysitter upstairs running around. And Angie began, began her yoga practice, and I immediately started to look around the room and said, wow, there's something happening here that I never really put together between the yoga practice and the work that I was doing. I mean, I knew it felt good for me, but it never really occurred to me how important this could be for the women who were coming to WISE. And I, one of the things I thought about was like, what we are actually doing, what we're talking about in support group. And, um, and then Angie left and we all sat down to kind of have our support group talk and the women were just like, I don't really want to have a conversation about my you know, crappy husband or the horrible thing that's happening to me in court right now. Like, I really just want to be here and maybe you know, drink some tea and connect with each other. And I was like, wow, this is really different from our usual support groups where people are very happy to really dig in and, and um, very anxiously often you know, discuss all the horrors in their lives. So I said, okay, you know, duly noted, let's get some tea and hang out. Next week we came back and um, you know, Angie and I said, well, so you know, how was everyone's week? And that's one woman who um, we had known at Wise for a while and who had a horrible history of violence with her husband, um, who was in jail at the time. 
um, who had, he had stabbed her, she'd been to a psychiatry, psychologist, in the hospital, obviously, for her wounds. Um, and she said, well, the most amazing thing happened to me this week. You know, I got into my car and I remembered I can breathe. And this was someone who, when she came to us, she just thought yoga was like the weirdest thing in the whole world. Like never, ever would have done yoga. I mean, it was 10 years ago too, so yoga has gained a lot of popularity in the past decade. And I just thought like, oh wow, <laughs> this is, I need to learn more about this. Like this is something that obviously is incredibly important. And one of the things that was so powerful about that for me was that her um, physiology had done that on its own. Like it had gotten this information and had just known that it could make use of it. And, and Angie and I were complete beginners in terms of how we might be saying you can take this information into your life beyond your, you know, the yoga practice or even the yoga class that she was leading. Um, so that was very important information for me and I went running off afterwards and said, I bet tons of people have studied this and I just don't know anything about it. And of course, sure enough, that was true. And I began the somatic experiencing training, um, which is Peter Levine's kind of body-mind trauma healing modality. Um, very similar to sensory motor therapy, which is Pat Ogden's work. Um, they actually worked together for a long time. And, um, and that was great. And I do somatic experiencing on a regular basis with folks. Um, but I've been really frustrated by how to bring somatic experiencing into a group experience. Because the other thing that I've really learned from my decades doing this work is connecting survivors is incredibly important. The isolation of this kind of violence is so profound um, that you know sitting with me is helpful and yet being with a lot of people who can share experiences is has a, a power that it just doesn't if they're just hanging out with me. So I've tried it in various ways and you know we tried to weave SE into our groups and we've done you know some somewhat successfully and I thought you know this is a great time for me to become a yoga instructor and start to kind of figure out how I can weave somatic experiencing into a yoga class. And um, so did, you know, for those of you who aren't yoga instructors, the 200 hour is the basic yoga teacher training. So I did a 200 hour class and, um, and that was wonderful. And I got very, I've always been very interested also in kind of the, um, how traditional practices, um, kind of interface with what we now are understanding about neurobiology. So did some training in something called energy medicine and energy medicine yoga. And then um, just finishing last year, did the trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga teacher training, which we've now started to offer a class. So that's my little story. And I thought, yes. I have no idea, what is the trauma center? Oh, thank you for asking. I didn't get there, but... I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, this is a small enough group, so we should just be having a conversation. Um, so the Trauma Center is um, an organization in Boston. It's part of something called JRI, which is, I think, Justice Research... Resource Institute. Resource Institute, thank you. Um, they do all sorts of work. Um, some They have residential programs for teens. Um, so they're... They're a huge kind of program, and within that is the trauma center. Um, the trauma center, I think, really became kind of a, 
a bigger name on the face of the earth because for um, many years it was directed by someone named Bessel van der Kolk, who is a very big personality and um, is a psychiatrist who became very interested in body-mind approaches to trauma and really led the charge to um, for the trauma center to take on yoga. He became interested in yoga himself and then said, you know, I bet we can get some grants to actually look at what this should look like for trauma survivors. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I think we should maybe try to do a little yoga. So if you would like, um, you might just start to notice what it's like to be here now. And so that might mean just noticing um, how you feel in your chair. You may notice some weight of your body. You may notice your feet on the floor. If you'd like, you could take your shoes off. And if you'd like, you can leave them on. So there are choices here. And if you'd like, you can you know, move yourself in your chair in a way that suits you at this moment. So whatever that might mean to you. And you could see where you'd like to place your hands. So you may like to have your hands together. You may like to have hands on your knees or on your thighs. And if you'd like, you're ready, you could explore extending your spine. You might want to bring the sort of flat part of your head, the crown of your head up towards the ceiling if that feels interesting or appropriate to you. And you might notice the air coming in and out of your body. And that might be through your nose or through your mouth. And you could experiment with trying both. You can have your eyes open or closed. So these are all choices. And if you'd like to experiment a little bit with some neck or head movements, you could start to bring your head over to one side so you could you know, bend so that your ear comes towards one shoulder. And if you've chosen to do that, you might notice that there is a little stretch or sensation in the neck. And you might not notice that at all. So it's always different. You might notice a difference in your breath. If you'd like, you could bring the arm up on the side where your head is bent, if you're doing that. And you could even bring it over on top of the ear on the opposite side. And let that gravity just hug the head a little bit if that feels appropriate for you. And that might change the sensation a little bit. So you might notice that. I know for me, it moved the sensation a little bit and made it a little bit more intense. When you're ready, if you'd like, you could bring your head back up to the center. You can stay on one side or move back and forth to the other side. I'm going to move over to the other side. So 
So if you'd like, you can let the head come over to the other side. And you might notice that the two sides feel similar, might feel different. And if you'd like, you could also bring the hand up around and onto the ear. This allow gravity to give a little bit more tug. And again, you might notice a little bit of a change in sensation. If you're ready, if you'd like, you could bring your head back up to a more neutral position. And if you'd like, you could bring your shoulders up towards your ears and then slide them down your back. Sometimes people like to breathe, kind of sink their breath with this movement by inhaling their shoulders up towards their ears and exhaling when their shoulders come back and down. This is another choice. Maybe if you're choosing to do that, you could do it another once or twice. Whatever feels appropriate for you here today. And you're feeling complete. If your eyes are closed. We invite you to open them, but also if you'd like to stay here for a bit, that's another choice that you can exercise. Thanks. So it's a little, a little different from how we would probably do TCTSY class right off the bat at Wise, and we'll talk more about what that looks like. Um, but also, you know, throughout, we have three hours. Well, now we have two and a half hours. Um, we have a lot of information, but I also want to make sure that we weave in some practice. So if you're also kind of feeling like I'm talking too much, you can just let me know. Because I want to to do that. <laughs> um, so Deb did a great job of just kind of orienting us to um, the fact that we're here because it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month and that this is an enormous issue um, in our world. And not only in the way that it impacts individual victim survivors, but also that we are all living in a world that in so many ways support this kind of violence. Um, so as we go through this time together, I just want to call our attention to the inescapable fact that many of us are impacted in many ways by this kind of violence. So while we want to have open conversations about it, we also have to be as sensitive as possible to kind of how people's personal experiences may impact the conversation. Um, so just to keep our awareness open about that. Also, that um, you know, we're talking about the larger traumas as well as um, gender-based violence and sexual violence. Um, but when we're working with trauma, that it's so much about power that um, when we do this work, it becomes essential for us to equalize power. So when we're in our roles as providers, that um, in whatever way we can equalize power, 
we should be doing that. And, um, and that can get tricky in our different protocols and roles and rules and, you know, you have to have boundaries and you, you know, there are all of these different ways that we enter into our practices. Um, but to always kind of have ourselves deeply rooted in the understanding that this is all of us, that it's not an us and them kind of um, thing, that this is really, when we're talking about trauma and when we're talking about sexual violence, this is all of us. So um, trauma-sensitive yoga is based on these three theoretical um, fields of study, trauma theory, neuroscience, and attachment theory. Um, and I um, have I've appreciated the trauma center for many years for many reasons, um, including Bessel van der Kolk, who I have a love-hate relationship with. Um, and um, but their work on trauma-sensitive yoga has been really, I mean, I'm just really overwhelmed by the amazing work that's being done there. Um, from my perspective in particular, because they are so interested in people's personal experiences, they started thinking that trauma-sensitive yoga was going to be one thing, and a lot of that was based on all sorts of claims that yoga instructors make, in particular about heart rate variability and, um, and how mindfulness works and all of this other stuff. And so they really started there and they have ended up in a very different place. And they're continuing to grow based on the qualitative you know, responses from the people who are in the research projects and these ongoing groups. So um, another amazing thing about Bessel and the Trauma Center is they've been able to really walk this line of doing very serious research, science, inquiry, and investigating areas that have been hard to get you know, research grants for, and have um, been able to get you know, published in um, you know, peer-reviewed journals and are now considered you know, an evidence-based practice. So pretty amazing accomplishment. Um, again, there's so much here, so I want to make sure that you all feel like you can chime in whenever you want. I'm sure there's, we'll hit some place where I, you will know more about something than I will in this presentation. So um, TCTSY, which is how we refer to it, even though it's not the easiest thing to say, <laughs> Um, is based on these three areas and very equally balanced between the three of them. So recognizing that none of them are more important than the other. So what we're going to do is go through the three areas and then talk about kind of how the trauma center got to where it is now um, with the practice. Um, so starting with trauma. So a little kind of trauma review for many of you, I'm sure. Um, Trauma is about survival. Trauma is about keeping oneself safe. And so when we talk about trauma, it's the event itself, and then there's the impact of the event. And one of the hallmarks of trauma is that it lasts beyond the event for many people, not for everyone. I also always want to say that one of the really interesting things for me in the field of trauma research is that many people are not impacted by trauma. So many, many people experience traumas and really don't have this long-term response, which is always a thing that we want to know about as well. You know, what's going on there that those people aren't being impacted. Um, 
But, you know, the fact of the matter is when we're faced with a threat, then something's going to happen in all of us, hopefully, because we need to keep ourselves safe. And so here's our line on the savannah. And um, I use the slide all the time. And I was just thinking last night, like, oh, it's so interesting. Like, I think of this as an objective kind of threat. Um, and so it's sort of the go-to choice. And yet, um, threats are not objective. So threats are based on our experience. So I don't know enough about lions, but I think sometimes male lions eat lion cubs or something. Is that, does anyone know? Yeah. And, and definitely other lions cubs, right? Is another thing. So, so, you know, depending on, you know, if, if it's his lion, I think that's a male too. If it's his lion, if it's his cub, then maybe he would feel safe. But if it's, you know, another lion's cub, then maybe it wouldn't. Um, and, you know, as with our experience as well, so, you know, maybe, you know, depending on our identity, based on our backgrounds, based on the context, something may seem to be a threat to me or may be in reality a threat to me and may not be to someone else based on identity or background or other things. So always important to remember. And so here's the lion chasing us down the savannah. It's a threat. And so what do we do? So the first thing is we freeze, right? So there's this momentary freeze where we go, oh, oh my gosh, you know, what, what the heck? What's going on here? And, um, you know, if there was a big bang outside of the window here, we would all, right? We do this mobilization, you know, like what's happening? And then probably look to each other as well, like what should, should or what do we do here? Are we okay? And um, so there's this freeze, and also this importance of um, connection and community when we're threatened. And sometimes that's all it is: is like, oh, oh, it was a bang, and we can all kind of acknowledge that with each other, and we can go on with our day. Um, but assuming that that's not what it is, then we have these survival responses. So the first one is to fight. And the next one is flight. So we hear this a lot, fight, flight. And then there's freeze. And um, think, you know, it can be hard for us sometimes, especially around here, to remember that freeze is actually an adaptive response. Because um, it just seems impossible that that's adaptive when you're, you know, driving at 70 miles an hour and there's a deer on the road in front of you. You're like, how can that be a good idea? But of course, deer were, did not adapt evolutionarily to our cars driving on the highway. They're adapted for predators. And you know, the other thing that probably most of us have seen is the deer either in the woods or at the end of a field. And it's hard to see a deer a lot of time when they're standing still in that environment and their coats change that blend in. It's quite an amazing thing until they move and then the tail goes up. You can see the movement. And this is the same for predators, um, that they're looking for the movement. And so the freeze can make a lot of sense. Also, um, when in freeze, and in humans, this is um, often called tonic immobility, there are other things happening. So, um, you know, the system's kind of slowing down. So if you are injured, then you might not be bleeding out as quickly. Um, there are all of these chemical things happening. You know, the opioids are flowing, so you're not going to feel it as much. Um, and we send our brains someplace else, so we dissociate because you don't really want to be there for this. You know, if a car actually hits you, 
So it's very adaptive in that way as well. Um, and then the last one, which gets a little bit less airtime, is um, the submit response. Mm -hmm. So um, submit is a little bit less. Um, so you know, freeze tonic immobility is, you know, generally he can't move. And you know, talking to many, many, many victims of sexual violence um, over the years, they will almost always tell you that they are terrified and felt like they could not move. And yet we're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I remember one of the first women I met at the, um, at the ED here said, all I could think about was grabbing this big flashlight that was on this hanger on the wall and hitting him with it, but I couldn't move. Um, so this is tonic immobility. Submit is um, often a little bit more flexible. So I may be even deciding what makes the most sense here is to give in because I know I'm going to get hurt worse if I don't give in. And this happens especially in domestic violence where they know kind of what the ramifications might be if they don't submit. Um, and sometimes these things aren't as clearly defined as this. Um, this is in the wilderness called um, immobile collapse. And um, it's what the possum does, so this playing dead. Um, and again, it's an adaptive thing in the wild because you, um, the possum is lying there and many animals don't want to eat something that's already dead. So an animal will come over and be like, yeah, already dead, full of bacteria, I'm not going to eat it. Or might be like, well, I just came across some dead animal. I might as well drag it home, but I'm not really looking for dinner right now. And then the little possum has time to get itself up and sort of shake itself off and move on. Um, so it's not actually killed. One of the defining differences between human behavior and animal behavior is this ability for animals to do something to get rid of the fight flight response, so the stress response in the body. So they'll shake or they'll jump or they'll run. Um, and this is something that as humans, we don't do so well. So, and in fact, um, in our healthcare practices, often we will, um, you know, it, it, we don't like to see when people are, you know, shaking in the ED or something. And so we'll often medicate that instead of kind of letting that proceed through someone's body. So that's one of the things that somatic experiencing and sensory motor therapy is really trying to do is to allow that response kind of happen in the body and release the adrenal response or the HPA or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's a survival stress response, right? So you're getting the energy. So no matter what happens next, you're going to get ready to defend yourself by fighting back and running away. So the, you know, Heart rate goes up, and because you got to get all that you know energy to where you need it, and um, and then there's constriction. So constriction is all of the resources are kind of going into one place, and um, so if I'm you know up for a walk and some guy jumps out of the trees at me, I'm not going to be like, huh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? You know, what that was that movie this weekend? You know, I'm going to be all about like what's happening right now. And so all of the attention gets constricted into that moment. Um, and so this is actually, I brought Robert Sapolsky's first book. I think it's his first book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, 
that's now he wrote this in the 90s and he also actually I just checked this last night on Netflix because um, it used to be live stream on Netflix and now you have to get the DVD um, but he did a National Geographic special on stress that he's hysterical he's just a very funny man and so um, it talks about his trip so he um, goes to Africa and studies baboons and um, so the stress specialist sort of about that and how he um, started to get really interested in like what's going on physiologically in these baboons in order to kind of, you know, make the leap to humans. And um, one of the great stories from Robert Sapolsky is, um, so he goes out there one year and um, he's, you know, all excited and like nine-tenths of his baboons or no, I think it was more like one-tenth of his baboons, that's a decimation, I guess, um, were dead, and they were the, the dominant males. So he had these dominant males who were you know, just awful. And oh, and one of the reasons he's, we're studying this particular plane of baboons is they're on this like wildlife preserve, and so they never had to hunt. All they would do was go you know, through the trash from the tourists and just eat out of the dumpster. And so they, there was no stress in these baboons' lives. Like, they're, you know, in the wild, like, you have to worry about where you're going to get your next meal from. They didn't have to worry about that. And apparently, these horrible, you know, um, males who were in charge, you know, just, like, were hogging all the food all the time. And, you know, even though they had nothing to be stressed about, were totally stressing out everyone else, um, they had gotten into some bad food and died. And so they were gone. And he was like, oh, my gosh, you know, my experiment is blown. And um, for me, what was most interesting about that was um, that the next generation of males who you would think would jump into that, you know, alpha male position didn't. They were all like, oh, this works pretty well. Like, everyone can just share the food, um, which I found really, really fascinating. And, yeah, I mean, there's, I could go on about, I mean, I think how we think about evolution is so, we've been, it's been so drummed into our head that it's about, you know, the, you know, who's ever the most powerful is going to jump into that and all that stuff. And that, in fact, um, that's not always the, the case and that the, actually the reason that human beings have survived as we have, and that we all have little computers in our pockets now and, you know, we have all of these other magical things is because we're so good at cooperating. Um, which is kind of counter to the evolution story that we hear all the time. But anyway, so this is, you know, if there's a tornado bearing down the house, this isn't the day to repaint the kitchen, right? You're not going to be worrying about long term. Um, so survival stress response is, you know, this very focused energy on just getting through that moment. Um, and this is him again, you know, you have better things to do than digest breakfast when you're trying to avoid eating someone's lunch. Um, you know, growth inhibited, reproduction sex aren't a priority. Your immune system is inhibited, which, you know, totally makes sense, right? If you're not going to live, why are you going to expend that energy there? But, you know, it's just kind of fascinating. Um, we know pain perception is blunted, and our senses are very alert, um, and our sensory memory is sharpened. So right now, we are all having an, a sensory experience, but then, you know, we have these your brains, our hippocampus in particular, that creates a context, you know, so we create a story um, that, so that our, we can go home and tell a narrative to other people, you know, oh yeah, so I was at this thing today, but that's not how we're actually experiencing the moment. 
And what happens with trauma is we lock in the experiences more the way that we actually are having them in the moment, so in the senses. And this really makes sense, too. Can you say that again? Sure. So, um, so other memories are, I mean, in particular, the hippocampus, this is totally, like, so, you know, simplified, and I don't know a lot more than the very simplified, you know, kind of version of it. But, um, you know, a good way for me to think about it is, you know, it's like a puzzle. So you, like, throw all these puzzle pieces into the air, and then, you know, if we're trying to put a puzzle together, then we take off the box cover, we put the edges together, and then, and that's sort of what our regular memory does, is create this context. And then we can put all the pieces in chronologically where they fit, and, um, and it all kind of makes sense. But when it's a traumatic, you know, event, and then a memory, we don't have that because we don't want it, we don't need it, we don't want to put the energy into it. So like if I'm walking down the street the next time, I want to know like that's the tree that the guy jumps out from behind. I don't want to be like, ah, oh, you know, oh yeah, so I remember three weeks ago I was taking a walk and it was a nice day and oh my gosh, and then I was listening to my iPod and there was a great song on and oh, I should sing. No, it's like I want to know that's the tree where the guy jumps out from. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's, so I will get triggered mm -hmm to remember that. So also maybe the neighbor is barbecuing. So I'm out someplace else and I smell barbecue and I go, oh my gosh, that's the smell that happens before the guy jumps out of the trees. So there are again these very adaptive ways for our um, physiology to keep ourselves safe, to remind us in just a split second that this is a potentially dangerous situation. and then we go into the whole kind of survival mode again. So then the heart rate goes up because I'm going to get ready to mobilize to keep myself safe. And so the, the comparison of the puzzle is you don't have the context to know that there isn't, it's not likely that a guy will know exactly when I'm walking down this path every single time. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not getting the context yeah. piece of it. So you're not putting in the bigger context of understanding that because that happened three weeks ago, that guy's in jail now, or you know, he couldn't possibly know that I was walking down the path at this very time and be ready behind the tree again, kind of thing. Right, so it's mean? a mixed blessing. Yeah. Yeah, so while we're doing this very much to keep ourselves safe, at the same time, there's this other part of it that's like, oh, what are the chances that there's going to be a guy behind this tree again? Yeah. Um, but for the zebra at the watering hole, right. the first time the lion jumps out, and they're at the watering hole again, and they hear the rustle in the brushes. They're like, okay, it's time for me to run. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to, you know, take time to kind of look around and figure out, is this really what's happening? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, so we don't need, you know, I don't need to have, so um, these experiences are in um, the more kind of primitive areas of our brains. They're and not in this prefrontal cortex part. So, you know, I don't need to you know, do a calculus problem, not that I can anyway, but... Some deductive Yeah, or recite Shakespeare, or whatever it is, in that moment, yeah, I don't, and I don't want a big story about it, I just want to know, this is when I'm in danger. Yeah. 
But then the trouble is that memory is not there when you're recounting it to the police. So you're going to get well. I mean, this is great. Yes. So yes and no because one of the big mistakes of our criminal legal system has been this expectation that trauma survivors are going to be able to tell them who, what, where, when. So they come in, and you know, you've obviously not seen this. And you certainly see it in a case mm -hmm. review, because mm -hmm. Betsy comes to our um, sexual assault resource team case review. And the police are like, well, you know, we asked her what happened. And then they and then she gave us these different stories. And then how could we believe that clearly? She's not telling the truth. And so we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No. What you're not seeing is that you're asking the wrong questions. What you need to be asking is, what do you remember? What are you able to tell us about that experience? And that will be the same story every time, the same narrative. I don't know, the story sounds like it's not true. But, um, and so, so when those are very locked in clear memories, and um, there won't be the discrepancies, things will come back over time for sure. Um, so part of what we're always doing with law enforcement is trying to get them to see, like, oh, no, it's the questions themselves that need to change. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she can tell you exactly how many tiles are on the ceiling and what that light looks like mm -hmm. is great evidence, because if, he was, if she was engaging in consensual sex, she hopefully would not be counting the ceiling tiles. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah. But that's, she'll, she'll be able to tell you, and I can think of one woman that I know you work with who could, was talking about the bed frame. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so we, those, and they're very distinct in their, um, and they, you know, in order to protect us in the future. The other thing that's interesting, there will be a central detail. So there will be this thing that they're focusing on. And there's often a flashbulb moment where, um, so once you know, people are in that situation, they're like, oh no, things are really not looking good right now. Um, their hippocampus actually goes backwards about 30 seconds and can um, capture the past. It's an amazing phenomenon. Um, and that's a flashbulb memory. So often people will be like, I completely remember what happened at this you know, beginning point, you know, I'm walking down the street and I remember exactly when I first saw him and what his eyes looked like and what he said to me, and then I don't remember anything. Mm. And then maybe, oh yeah, I guess I do smell sausages, what's that, you know? Um, so there will be this flashbulb moment at the beginning. And then, you know, our brains do us the great favor of checking us out for the horror of the violence. Mm. So here's a very simple brain, which is really just what we were talking about, you know, that we are not in this cerebral cortex thing. We are in our limbic system, this kind of emotional brain, and this in our brainstem, but, you know, that we share with all animals, basically. The other thing that's really interesting in sexual assault is, um, you know, sometimes there, it looks to people from outside of the violence as though the victim had an opportunity to ex escape. And so they'll be like, well, why didn't you just leave? But that part of their brain is not really functioning. So they aren't thinking like, oh, I should say, I need to, oh my gosh, I forgot my tea in the car, let me go get that. No, they're just, and their body's probably frozen. And really what our brains are made for is to move our bodies. 
So even though the way that we sort of think about it in our world now is our brains are, it's all about our brains, but really our brains only function is to really get the other parts of us to do their thing. Is there um, any evidence of if someone takes a self-defense course that they are less apt to freeze? Or so it's a great question. I used to actually teach grad rape regression defense. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's just awesome because you just like scream and beat up the cop and all that stuff. Um, but it, um, and I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll, I do trainings with police officers a lot, and it's so interesting to hear police officers talk about this because they do a lot of training. And, you know, they're thousands, millions, I don't know how many times they train to do that. And yet, police officers will say, I was there and I couldn't reach for my gun. So, um, so yes and no. I mean, it takes a lot to override that response. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, it may be the best response. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this assumption that, oh, I should run away from this person who's probably faster and stronger than me is a bad, you know, it's actually probably a good thing that um, people don't resist. And that's part of what's going in people's heads, too, is like this sort of very quick analysis of the situation of like, this is actually probably not a good idea for me to fight back. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a question about whether, you know, we call the stress or trauma and where the line is, and some of this is just semantic, and I don't know if any of you have thoughts about this. Um, but, you know, there's also a history of studying for stress. Trauma is a pretty recent kind of way for us to think about all of this. And, you know, at first really looking at, you know, the adrenals and the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and, of course, Robert Sapolsky comes along and is like, oh, we should be, like, drawing blood and figuring all this out. Um, and then we got, like, super into the brain. It was like, oh, my God, it's all about the brain. And, you know, like, uh, many psychology departments became brain science departments. And, you know, because it, like, nothing about the brain mattered. And, you know, more and more, I think people are starting to see, like, oh, actually, the brain and the body are connected. <laughs> Maybe we should be looking at this all together. Um, and in terms of where the line is, um, there's, I think, the shutdown is really where we're going from stress into trauma. So when, you know, when someone can run back, run away or fight back, that's not traumatic. So like with my example, I'm walking down the street, the guy jumps out at me and I look at him and I say, really, are you kidding me? Like I, I teach red and I, you know, beat the crap out of him and leave him on the sidewalk. I don't have to encode that in any different way because I know the next time I walk down the street, guy jumps on the trees and I beat him up and I go for a walk. Um, it's when I shut down, when I say, uh-oh, this, this is not looking good for me, that I have to encode it differently. And that's really the line where we're into trauma. Now, the thing is, we'll see a little later, there's also this um, question about, well, what about the cumulative kinds of smaller traumas or stress and all the stress, and then you add a trauma on. So, you know, it may not be as clear as that. Um, and of course, in our world, it's never as clear as that. But we're really kind of looking at the shutdown. Um, and I, um, so I, I have lots of people who are big fans of it, but I, 
I don't know if any of you saw Stephen Porges when he was here a number of years ago. Oh gosh, he's really great. So, um, and he, I think two years ago, he was supposed to write a book on, so he, it studies, created this idea of this thing called the polyvagal um, system and polyvagal theory. And um, he, he's just like kind of an amazing person. Um, and by the way, his wife is the new director of the Kinsey Institute, and she studies, um, uh, gosh, what's it called? The hormone, the like love hormone. Oxytocin? Yes, oxytocin. Mm. So she's the oxytocin mm. expert of like the world. So they're adorable. And um, he, so he was supposed to write, because this book is, not a good read, in my opinion. He um, and and so a couple of years ago, he was supposed to write a book about like clinical implications for polyvagal theory, which would be actually something that we might want to read. Um, and I just looked last night because I was like, oh, I wonder if he ever published that book. Because I actually was like on you know on Amazon, like oh no, whenever it comes out, send it to me. And it never came out. And so now they're just. Um, it looks like he's going to release something this, I think it's September. That's like, he, it's called the mini version or something, but I suspect it's kind of more how, how do you apply it. How do you spell his last name? Um, P-O-R-G-E-S. Okay. Yeah. So when I bring that up, because he, polyvagal theory is that, but that there's the ventral, so when we are safe, we connect through our eyes with people and it actually um, resonates with us and um, and can um, get our heart and um, get our heart rates kind of in sync. So completely, we, it's, it's when we're feeling safe and relaxed. And then if we don't, we go into the sympathetic nervous system, fight flight, and then the shutdown is the dorsal vagal system. And one of the things that's fascinating about that is the dorsal vagal is subdiaphragmatic and connected to neurologically to all of our organs. So then you start to see, oh, if we're shutting down on a regular basis because we're in trauma or fear or even stress, um, then wow, doesn't it make sense that we're getting sick? Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's basically um, really mapping out what is happening physiologically in terms of chronic pain and um, you know all the GI stuff that people experience who are experiencing chronic stress and trauma. Really cool. Okay, so Bessel. So one of the most critical factors when there's a situation traumatic is the experience of physical helplessness. So the realization that no um, action can be taken to save our inevitable. So I go walk down the street and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's here. I can't do anything about this. I freeze. Um, and then the next time I walk down the street, I am reminded, and this is, and I get triggered, and this is, and then my, I say, I'm not going to go down that street for my walk. I'm going to go down that street, but that street has a tree that looks like the street before. And then I go to a party and they're having a barbecue. And the next thing I know, my life has gotten very, very small because everything seems scary. Um, and I'm never able to be in the present moment because I'm always worried, oh my gosh, this thing happened before and it's going to happen again. And how do I keep myself safe? 
So there are all these trees, there are all these barbecues, you know, there's just, the world is an unsafe place. And my, because my body is really trying to keep me alive. Um, so survival is um, an interesting thing. And I think, um, I know I have been in this position where it's like, oh, I'm like out of my kind of league here and I need to just disappear. But also, you see this with trauma that people are just like, I'm maybe I keep myself very, very small and quiet, and no one will see me, and I'll disappear, and I'll be safe. Um, and you know, Stephen Porges also talks about how this we share this dorsal vagal response with every animal on the planet. Like, I think you know, starting with bony fish or something. And that, you know, amphibians in particular, you know, they can just go down deep and just locked out like they can hold their breath. And that's, and you see this with trauma too, you know, they're like holding their breath and like, oh. And I know women that I work with can actually talk about this experience of trying to disappear. And in all of these different ways, they try to disappear by starving themselves or by being very quiet and not breathing. And, you know, maybe if I know I hear them outside of my room, I'm just not going to make a noise. And, you know, being just terrified, sitting in their bed, all curled up in the ball. Okay, so trauma theory. So now we're getting to the actual trauma center stuff. Um, so trauma theory is, like, um, really cool and um, really recent. So people for a long time have known about trauma, and I think... I know from Hippocrates on, I'm sure there's other stuff, but um, this sort of, like what something happened and how they're acting differently. Um, and it's very interwoven with um, the culture that we're in. So, um, and we don't, especially, well, probably at any point in history, I feel like we're never really good at recognizing that we're in a culture and that that is important. So, um, so, you know, from the 1700s to the 1900s, there are all these women who people were very interested in um, that were called hysterics. Mm -hmm. And um, there are always like crazy ladies and they get locked up in institutions. And, um, and in the late 19th century, um, a bunch of psychologists, I'm just not, actually not sure what they call them, doctors, um, there's Charcot and Janet and then Freud um, came along and said, you know, this is really interesting. Like they all share these kind of common characteristics. And um, before Freud, it was really like, oh, let's let's like look at all these symptoms and make a list of them because this is kind of interesting. And then um, I think it was it was I think Charcot and Freud. It might have been Janet and Freud um, in the you know very late 19th century said you know, these women are actually remembering something from their childhood. And what they're remembering is that someone sexually assaulted them when they were children. And um, the women they were studying at the time were sex workers in Paris. And, you know, people in Austria were like, oh my gosh, you know, this is awful. And then they started to study women in Austria and um, Freud's peers said, um, this was, you know, first he published a paper, The Ideology of, um, of Hysteria, I think it was 1896. 
you know, where, nope, this is what's happening. These women are remembering these, set, he called them sexual experiences or something. It was child sexual assault. And then um, his peers just said, well, wait, no. It, in, you know, it's one thing if they're sex workers in Paris, but our peers are not sexually assaulting their children. Mm -hmm. And so that is actually what caused Freud to take back his statement and then say, oh yeah, you're all right, I was wrong. These women are actually just fantasizing about their fathers coming to their bedrooms at night because my peers couldn't possibly do something like that. And now he has got such a bad, bad rap sort of ever since because he you know, had to take that back because of the culture he was in. People could not believe that that could be happening. And we still see this all the time around sexual violence. People cannot believe that, you know, the fraternity brother or the doctor or whoever it is president. could pop the president. <laughs> yeah. They, you can't wrap your head around it. How could that be? And then how could it be that that person could be the president of the United States? Well, it couldn't have happened. And, you know, we are just, we're so in that culture and you really see it in um, people's, you know, victims of trauma, when they come forward and say, this is what happened, um, and people, especially people who should be helping them, say, mm, that could, no, I don't think that could possibly be, and then why didn't you run away? And why didn't you, you know, what, you froze? You know, but he, you know him, it's your boyfriend, like, well, that's crazy. Um, you can really see how the culture shapes um, not only the trauma itself, but the experience of the survivor, how that person you know, all of those women were being locked up for hundreds of years because people are like, that, no way, that can't be really what this is. So trauma theory is um, very much part of the culture in which it exists. Oh, look, culture matters. Um, so another thing that's interesting is just World War One and Two versus <coughs> Vietnam. So World War One and Two is called shell shock, and it was very physically manifested. You can see videos online of men just collapsing. Um, from shell shock. And then in Vietnam, they came back and um, the VA hospital um, was like, oh, this is a psychological disorder. And um, all of a sudden it became a psychological disorder and they weren't collapsing anymore. They were having psychological issues. So again, you know, how we define it is actually how people experience the trauma. Really fascinating. And so when it comes to sexual violence, we talked about hysteria and, you know, that we're in this cult culture and here are guys at war. Um, but we are in this culture that makes light of sexual violence, um, that actually tries to sell products, um, glamorizing somehow um, sexual violence, and um, blames victims for the violence. So it really matters how people kind of do after that. So Dave Emerson, who um, is really the leader of TCTSY, you know, says, if we're stuck constantly adapting to trauma and the systems around us, society, are treating us like people making free choices from a completely open slate of options, and we have the recipe for pathologizing the traumatized person instead of the trauma itself. So um, this is a pretty, yeah, like, you could spend a lot of time on this, it's a pretty amazing statement. But I think, um, for me, really calls attention to the importance of um, the culture in us all really working um, within the culture to shift to the culture, as well as doing the work with individual um, people.
And always, one of the beauties of trauma work is that we are looking at the event. You know, we're not saying like, you know, yes, there is a diagnosis, but you know, that is happening to you because of this other thing. And then sexual violence is happening because there is this larger thing too that's supporting it. Similar diagnoses. So PTSD is the only diagnosis that actually exists right now for trauma in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And um, really got going in the 70s with men coming back from Vietnam. Um, and um, was very much, again, looking at the symptoms like, oh, look, these guys, you know, all having sort of similar responses. We should have a diagnosis. Let's do it. And um, is, you know, these diagnoses are connected to funding. So I've been to a lot of workshops and stuff with Bessel van der Kolk, who is on some of these committees and talks about, I don't know if he talked about it in your training, but um, that <coughs> how political it is. And um, you, know, you kind of think, oh, everyone just gets together and you know, kind of hashes out what should be in the DSM. But you know, how um, connected to funding it is in the pharmaceutical industry, unfortunately. And, um, and in this case, you know, very, you know, for great reasons, the VA started to realize this, there's something happening here, and we should really address this. Um, and then other people who were doing clinical work around that time were applying this post-traumatic stress disorder um, framework to the work that they were doing, one of whom is Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery. So I have my one very old copy. Um, and um, they were saying, you know, it fits and it doesn't fit. You know, there's something different about what I'm seeing. Because it just seems different that if it's someone that you're in a relationship with, sort of different from when it's the enemy in a war. And if it keeps happening, that's just, you know, what I'm seeing is different. And so she said, I'm calling this complex PTSD. And then she wrote her book. Um, which is amazing, even though it's getting pretty old. Uh, <coughs> and it's really looking at the similarities and differences between you know, men coming back from war and women who are experiencing gender-based violence. So in particular, um, domestic violence and this sense of captivity and being trapped. Um, I think something interesting Yeah. You know, twenty percent of soldiers in Vietnam Vietnam are using heroin. <clears throat> I mean, they're in the midst of horrific trauma. You know, either participating, witnessing all that, right? Then, you know, we thought we're gonna have an epidemic when they come back. A small fraction of them continued using. And you know, our our initial idea about trauma was, or of of um, well, it's all together. Of addiction was 1950s research of a rat in a cage drinks heroin water until it dies. Right. Forget the guy's name all the time, but somebody in the 70s said that's not something not right there. So he made what's called a rat park, and it's this gigantic enclosure with natural features, other rats, food. They can have sex. They can hide. They can relax, eat, and there's heroin water, and a small fraction of them used it, and an even smaller fraction of them went back and used it, none of them died. So the idea is it's not the cage, it's not you, it's yeah. the cage you're in. So, you know, compared to the horrific events in Vietnam, even if their life isn't perfect, it's a rat park compared to where they were. Someone 
experiencing domestic abuse, they're in their safe zone and it's not safe. Thank you so much for saying that's perfect. Um, you, you just read Johan Hari's book? Yeah. 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 And, and um, you know, this is gender in general, you know, it's so interesting because yeah, is that kind of the world for women, you know, where there are people making jokes about rape all the time? Like, what, yeah, are you safe? Are you not safe? And then if you are sexually assaulted, it's like, well, why did you go to his room? Why did you do this? Why, you know, and then it's like, but I thought it would be okay because, and yeah, and so there's domestic no violence is the most, right, yeah. what is safe? And um, <laughs> yeah, you know, domestic violence is just this, you know, magnification in a million times. This one person who you choose over everyone else in the world to trust, mm -hmm. and they are the ones that are creating the danger and the violence. And the substance use is adaptive. It's not Absolutely. a moral flaw. It's not some sort of... Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's adaptive behaviors. Speaking of Vietnam, and it's in a book that we've both read, um, the water buffalo in Vietnam never ate the opium plants ever. When the bombs started dropping in Vietnam, they ate them constantly. When the mm -hmm. bombs stopped, they stopped eating them. It's Ooh. adaptive. Substance um, use is an adaptive behavior to help yourself yeah. feel okay in your body when your body is not okay. So I was in Cambodia a couple of years ago on this elephant reserve because I'm really into elephants. And they had an elephant there. I mean, I just happened to find out about it that was old enough to have been through the war. And I was like, so have you noticed anything about that? Because elephants are so sensitive and communal and um, and they said, well, they didn't even know, and, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if everyone knows, I didn't really know the extent to which we bombed Cambodia until I was there, <laughs> but we did. <coughs> and, um, they said, yeah, we actually didn't really know where they had been, because they, there are these elephants that are taken from families who don't want to take care of elephants anymore, and, um, they said there was, but there was a gas tank, little gas tank exploded on, you know, near their property, and that this elephant just completely freaked out and just went into like this lockdown for mm -hmm. weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, yeah, and we realized, oh. like, oh, this is the one elephant that we had on the property that was around during the war. Mm -hmm. I know, it's not amazing. Okay. Oh, so. Um, so the other thing that Gina Herman was talking about is um, that not only does it matter kind of in terms of the diagnosis, but how we're going to do some sort of intervention and treatment is going to be really important um, in this you know, more complex situa situation because we're realizing that any way that we are taking power away is going to be counter to helpful with this group of people. Um, we can't tell them what to do. Because if you tell them what to do, then you're acting like the abuser, and that's not helpful. So it has to be completely coming from a place of empowerment. The next um, iteration of diagnoses that never have really made it to a full diagnosis is um, Desnos, Disorders of Extreme Stress, not otherwise specified. And people started, you know, it was like also relational, but started to realize like, oh, when people are kids and this are seeing this stuff or experiencing this stuff, that matters. And that there's this physiological aspect to it. So um, leading to chronic pain syndromes um, and also this um, hypersensitivity to any kind of physical contact and also generalized 
um, physical, so not being able to feel specific points um, in their body, but all physical sensation became more generalized. Um, they were self-harming, and also this is something that Judith Herman noticed in her patients, was that these patients, um, different from the Vietnam vets, were hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, they also had a lot of shame about their experiences. So even though unlike the Vietnam vets may have committed horrible atrocities because of the circumstances they were in, um, these women hadn't, and yet they were feeling tremendous shame about their experiences. Um, and um, the other thing that started to happen around, and Desnos was around 2000, so this is really recent stuff. They, you know, this is when brain scans started to become a little bit easier to um, acquire, and so people started to look at, oh, what's happening in people's brains when all this stuff is going on? Um, and then complex trauma. So complex trauma is kind of a combination of complex PTSD and Desnos, um, and is, you know, all of those things, relational, can start in childhood, pre-verbal, um, looking more and more at the neurophysiology and how it impacts the body. And this cascading interplay of events, which I suspect will sound familiar to many of us, that um, there's, you know, people experience one trauma and then another, and then another, and then another. So, um, you know, trauma not being a one-time thing or even a one-relationship thing, but repeatedly experiencing traumas, and sometimes similar traumas. So, um, I used to do our school program. A question you know, we get all the time from um, high school students was, I have a friend who says she was sexually assaulted five times. That's not possible, right? Like, no, I'm sorry to tell you that, in fact, that is very possible. Um, and um, so, yeah, this once someone has been victimized, this repetitive victimization. Um, so, th this is just a page from the Complex Trauma in Children and Adolescents National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Um, and, but just to say, you know, this be has become a sort of accepted thing, you know, the, um, and this complex kind of series of symptoms that we see, in particular in children. And then, of course, there's the ACE study that I think has become quite well known now. 17,000 people in the 90s um, were entered into the study by Kaiser Permanente, middle class, upper middle class. They all have health insurance. And um, Kaiser Permanente wanted to figure out, like, why are people getting sick? So probably something to do with their business model, but um, not to be cynical, but they... And um, this guy, Folletti, who actually also has spoken here many years ago now, um, started to kind of crunch all this data. And they said, this is wild. Like, we're asking people about their childhood experiences with neglect, poverty, witnessing domestic violence, being the victim of sexual assault or domestic violence. And every point, so they get one point for every yes to those questions. And with every point, they are more likely to be ill. So there's like a one-to-one -one ratio. And for every disease that they studied. Um, and this was really, you know, sort of 
ground shattering at the time. But if you think back on, well, if your immune system is shut down and it keeps shutting down, you know, if your stress response keeps kind of kicking in, well, it's no really big, huge kind of, um, you know, mystery why this is happening. And this is actually, in, oh, that's cute. I thought it could do the dot thing. But, um, so this has adoption of health risk behaviors, and there's a lot of question of whether we want that in there, because that was certainly the thinking at first was like, oh, yeah, well, you're stressed, and then, you know, you start to drink, and you're not exercising, and so that's why you're getting ill. But um, it's become much more recognized now through things like Stephen Purchase's work and other, you know, neurobiologists that, no, there's just... It makes sense that if you're experiencing a lot of stress and trauma, then you're going to get ill. I think this is just kind of another version, but um, you know, on this version, which I love, they talk about even before you're born, all of the historical trauma, the things that you're born into. So you're born into slavery, you know, or um, Rachel Yehuda does this amazing kind of research on the children of um, victims of the Holocaust and how traumatized they are. Of course, they haven't, they didn't live through the Holocaust themselves. Um, so how, what you're born into, or you're born into a system that doesn't recognize you, that matters. And then um, are kind of not talking about this health risk behaviors, but are talking about, you know, allostatic load like this, you know, how much, what happens cumulatively. Well, isn't that include the, uh, the social context, including level of attunement and stress level in the parents? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, which is some of what the ACEs are getting at as well, I think. They're asking specific questions. It's a great question because I sometimes wonder about, um, you know, I feel like the ACE questions are really so much about, you know, when we'll talk about attachment, about, you know, how much attachment is there. Mm -hmm. I went to a, a baby yoga training once, and it was the woman who was doing um, the workshop was talking about the birthing process. Yeah. And how that can have like trauma associated with it, mm -hmm. and how in America we just take the babies away from the mothers and clean them and do all this stuff, and there's bright lights and yeah, it was just about like trauma that's happened to the baby mm -hmm. before they are even totally. And I know um, I do somatic experiencing. There are people who specialize in like the birth experience mm -hmm. and yeah, just different traumatic birth experiences, and then also definitely being in the incubator mm -hmm. and. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gabor Mate talks about uh, the effects in in utero of yeah. stress yeah. in the mother and and not isolated to the pregnant body, but to the context in which she lives and the stress that she's experiencing mm -hmm. and the any significant other partner is experiencing. Mm -hmm. That the issues the the it has an effect on the brain's. Um, uh, potential for ADHD and addiction, and, you know, before the baby's even born. Yeah. Stress. Yeah. I can't remember what the pathophysiology he was talking about, but I'm guessing it was something like that, but I can't remember. Yeah. Um, last but not least in our diagnoses is developmental trauma disorder, which is actually looking like it may be a diagnosis uh, coming up, and is for children. So um, 
with dysregulation, you know, issues with um, attentional consciousness, interpersonal skills. Um, and um, interestingly, you know, there's, this is one of the places where, you know, the trauma center, I sort of love them for this, but they um, you know, say that the, um, the medications for ADHD in the United States have been particularly um, fruitful for pharmaceutical agencies and uh, companies. And so this has been one of the struggles with getting some of these diagnoses into the DSM, but it looks like they're going to do it for this one. So TCTSY is specifically for complex trauma. So complex trauma is um, when the trauma center is talking about trauma now, they're really talking about complex trauma, but there's no diagnosis, so they can't do a, their, a test or something. So you'll see in their research that they're using the PTSD scales, usually CAPS. Um, but what they're really um, talking about is complex trauma. And part of that is because complex trauma is, um, has been so difficult to treat that we sort of have a pretty good grasp on PTSD, but this other thing is not has really still stymied us. So um, there, complex trauma you know, impacts the brain in all sorts of ways, and the ways listed here, you know, particularly in sensory um, processing, and we're gonna talk about the insula later, in particular in terms of interoception, um, Broca's area, the you know, language center of the brain. So these are things that are all adaptive. Once again, you know, if you're in a situation where, you know, well, language isn't really working for me a whole lot, so I might as well put all my, you know, eggs in another basket, um, because, you know, we're going to adapt based on what has been helpful. So if feeling my feelings isn't working that well for me, because what is being presented with me is really hard all the time, I'll just turn that part off so I can, you know, put some energy into other things. Um, so dissociation being, you know, a very, again, adaptive way of responding if you're facing a world that's dangerous all the time, having flashbacks because, you know, you're dissociating, but it's like, oh, no, don't forget that that horrible thing could happen to you again, so I have to remember, oh. Um, hey, uh, Judy, can I extend this for a minute? This sure. Yeah. How do I do it, though? It's asking me to extend the meeting because I think through the computer maybe. Uh, is it showing? No. Is there a different? Is there a different screen on the computer? <coughs> well, maybe we won't extend the meeting. <laughs> is there a remote for that TV? Don't see. Or we could just talk over it. Oh my gosh, look, it's not on this one. <laughs> we'll just look at this one. <laughs> Maybe I'll turn us off. Who knows? Um, but, you know, some of the things, you know, um, difficulty being touched. So if you repeatedly being touched non consensually, you know, that's going to be a problem. Um, difficulty with relationships. So this idea, you know, relationships have been hard. So sometimes people would think, well, then you would definitely want to stay out of them. But we have this amazing adaptive ability um, to want to jump right back in and try again and prove to ourselves this time it's going to be different. 
So this, I ran a sexual assault program at Dartmouth College for about five years. And um, you know, in talking in particular in sororities, a question you get all the time is, well, you know, my sorority sister said that she went to that fraternity and was sexually assaulted, and she keeps going back there. So obviously, she wasn't sexually assaulted there. It's like, no, actually, this is exactly what we human beings do all the time. We put ourselves right back in that situation to prove to ourselves that we can do it differently this time. And with sexual assault, it often doesn't work out all that well because there are predators there, and sometimes you're self-intoxicating to just get yourself through the scenario because it's terrifying and um, victimized again. Like that song, Chandelier? Oh, I don't know that song. Oh. Mm. <laughs> lyrics just are exactly what you were just talking about. Oh my gosh, oh. I need to write it down. Getting drunk to get through it. And it's a very popular song. Really? Yeah. Who sings it? Well, I can Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, self-medication. So this, they're all very adaptive ways of just dealing with, you know, horrible things. Um, so if you're repeatedly abused or neglected, it's probably better to cut yourself off from your own experience, expertise, because you don't get to use it anyway, and you might as well save your energy for something more important, like survival. So you're cutting yourself off from yourself. And that's that. We can have lunch. <laughs> <laughs>